0: Let us pray. Send your Holy Spirit, O God, to infuse our hearts and open our minds to the grace revealed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us grace to believe and in our belief to find power to follow you and to share your good news with all those whom we encounter. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, today we dive into Romans chapter 7 and... I want to start with verses one through six, but I don't want to allot more than 15 minutes here just to let you know, because the real meat, I think, is in the latter half. But I don't want to skip over the first six verses. Paul writes, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during that person's lifetime, thus a married woman, is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law, ...through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. So as we begin Romans 7, Paul is clear on his audience. He is speaking to those Jewish Christians still clinging to the law as a significant aspect of their identity. He might also be speaking to Gentile Christians trying to understand the significance and the meaning and the importance of the law uh, and so Paul offers an analogy about a married woman uh, being bound to her husband as long as the husband's alive, but being free to go to a different man if the husband dies, and somehow this is tied into what he is trying to say about the law. Um, Paul's one of those people who never learned in English class that the purpose of an illustration is to think, make things more clear uh, not more confusing, and so I'm going to do my best to unpack this little analogy for us. What I think Paul is saying here is that in the same way that a marriage covenant binds a woman to her husband, so the law bound Israel to Adam. If you remember Romans 5, Paul makes a comparison between life in Adam and life in Christ. Life in Adam is death. Life in Christ is life. And so the law is not bad, but it functioned to tether Israel to Adam. And what Paul is saying is that through baptism and through faith, they died to Adam. And thus, they have died to the very thing that bound them to Adam, which is the law. And so in a sense, Paul's saying your lifetime in Adam has come to an end And this new life in the Spirit has been inaugurated. Um, Paul has already spoken of baptism, and so a transfer of solidarity has taken place. We are moved from being in Adam to in the Messiah. And so even though the law is good, Paul has affirmed the law is good, and what we'll see in the second half of Romans 7 is that he'll need to exonerate the law uh, after you know, saying that it bound Israel to Adam. Um, so even though the law is good, it still had the practical effect of keeping Israel bound to Adam. And so this idea of, you know, being um, married to one person, then that person dies, so you can marry someone else, although Paul doesn't explicitly say this, it's good to remember that one metaphor for the church is the bride of Christ, Right. Uh, We are married to Christ. That's a metaphor we have in Scripture. And if we look in the Old Testament, this was a common metaphor where Israel was married to God, um, and Israel was often accused of being an adulteress. And so all this language here about marrying another man and not being an adulteress, there's a big history that Paul uh, isn't really explaining, but is in the backdrop if one knows the Old Testament well. And so Paul says you've died to the law uh, so that you can belong to another. And, of course, Paul is speaking um, about God who raised Christ from the dead uh, and to the Messiah himself. In verse 5, Paul says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. One thing to note about The word flesh, the Greek is sarx, and the New Testament uses it in three ways. Sometimes it's positive, uh, as in when God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Uh, Positive in the sense that it's part of the created order. Um, Sometimes it's neutral. It's just the part of creaturely life. And sometimes it's negative in that it is so easily corrupted and used by sin And so because Paul will offer a robust affirmation of the created order in Romans chapter 8, it's really important to say that Paul is not trying to set up this platonic dualism between the flesh and the spirit in the same way that someone like Plato did. Because for Paul, the gospel is about resurrection, resurrection of the body, resurrection of the flesh, a new spiritual flesh given to us, And so whenever Paul speaks of the flesh in negative terms, it's really its weakness. It's easily corrupted by sin. We see this in the garden where Jesus says to Peter, um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He doesn't say the flesh is bad. He just says the flesh is weak. And so when Paul kind of is down on the law and he kind of ties that into the weakness of the flesh... Basically, what he's saying is that the flesh is impotent to follow the law. And even if it was capable of following the law, that's not going to save us. What we really need is a transfer of solidarity. We need someone to take us out of our predicament and to move us into this new creation. And for Paul, that's exactly what God in Christ has done and really the point of his analogy. So we'll go ahead and stop there, see what questions, comments you all have about the first couple verses of Romans 7. verse 7 Paul writes What then should we say that the law is sin by no means yet if it had not been for the law i would not have known sin i would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said had not said you shall not covet but sin seizing an opportunity in the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness apart from the law sin lies dead I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through that which is good— In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law, at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, I'm a slave to To the law of sin. All right, so right off the bat, after Paul has been naming the limitations of the law as being something that bound Israel to Adam, he now needs to exonerate the law and kind of get the law off the hook. So he asks point blank, is the law sin? And Paul says, no, God gave the law, the law is holy. The law is good. The commandment is good. And so in verse 13, after saying that, he asks, did what is good bring death? Did the law bring death? And again, Paul's answer is no. It was sin working death in me through that which is good, i.e. the law. That is what brought death to me. And so one of the things that Paul has realized in his reflection is that the problem of humanity, the problem stalking humanity, is a lot bigger than he thought. It is sin with a capital S and death with a capital D, and it can't be dealt with by the law. And so he's in this position where, on the one hand, he has to affirm the law's goodness and the law's holiness, but then he basically has to say what its purpose is. And if one reads Paul's epistles, he often gives counter or, or kind of different understandings of what the purpose of the law is. So in Galatians, he says the law was a disciplinarian or a babysitter until Christ came, basically, something to take care of us until the big revelation of God in Christ came upon us. But here in Romans, it's as if Paul is saying that the purpose of the law was to be something of uh, a mirror or a floodlight that basically exposes the sin already at work in our members. Um, You know, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You know, the the law here is like a big flashlight that reveals the sin already present working its way through humanity. Uh, One metaphor I've heard is that uh, sin's like a burglar, right, that breaks into the creation, and the law is like an unlocked door that, in theory, could stop the burglar, but in reality, it's impotent, right? The burglar breaks right in, and the purpose of the law uh, is to allow sin to mete out its full measure so that it can then be tried, convicted, and sentenced, and that, of course, is the meaning of the cross. Now, whether or not that is a positive view of the law, we will save that for our discussion. And so in verse 14, he says, The law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Many questions have arisen as to what Paul is doing here. Is he, you know, speaking, Uh, like Augustine did in his confessions, offering his own autobiography. You know, young Paul finds himself at his own bar mitzvah, uh, unable to actually rein in his teenage desires. Is that what's happening? Or is he speaking of uh, Israel under Adam, you know, bound to the law, um, not able to do the good that they want to do, Uh, I think that the truth is, is that Romans can be read on a lot of different levels. But when Paul says in verse 17, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me, not only is Paul interested in exonerating the law, but Paul also wants to untangle the I from the sin. Because remember, the I, whoever you are, has died, you've drowned in the waters of baptism, And you have been plunged into this new life in the Messiah. And so for Paul, at our core, we are not what happens when sin is working in and through our members to bear fruit for death. That's a metaphor Paul uses. Uh, And so Paul here is not just exonerating the law, but in a sense, if this is the story of Israel bound to Adam, he's also exonerating Israel, Right, Because Paul has already basically articulated his belief that Israel failed in her vocation to be a light to the nations and that the way that God has kept God's covenant is by raising up the true Israelite, the son of David, to die on a cross and be raised on the third day. And so it would be very easy to read Romans and to condemn the law and the people of Israel. And so whenever Paul says, it's not I that do it, it's sin that dwells within me, if he is speaking as Israel, bound to Adam under the law, he is exonerating Israel in a sense, basically saying that it wasn't that Israel failed, but that sin prevailed and that it needs to be dealt with. And then, of course, that's what he turns to in verse 24, wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death? Uh, Whenever Paul says body of death, I think it's worth noting that in the Old Testament, contact with a dead body made one unclean. And so Paul is essentially saying we live in a dead body. And so Paul is highlighting not just the moral horror of our situation, but also the cultic horror as if to say, okay, here we are. The law has not really done anything other than tether us to Adam. Uh, We are unfit for the presence of God if we remain in Adam. So what's going to happen? And then, of course, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul really aggravates here the situation of human beings in Adam. It's where we can will the good, but we cannot do it. We might want to follow the law of God with our mind, but we're sold into slavery in the flesh. I mean, he really aggravates the problem, basically says, you are helpless, and what you need is not improvement or a seven-point plan, but what you need is rescue. You're in a body of death. And that, of course, would be horrible news if that's where the epistle ended. But instead, he says, thanks be to God, Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, as we read Romans 7, I believe we need to read this chapter on many different levels simultaneously. On the one hand, Paul is telling the story of Israel bound to Adam. You know, think of them worshiping the golden calf. They want to follow Moses, they want to be the new Exodus people, but at the end of the day, Sin dwelling in them makes them bow down before a golden calf and worship that calf. Um, They have the law, but they find themselves powerless to keep the law. Wretched people who they are, you know, who will deliver them from this body of death? Then it's a story of Adam in the garden right before the fall. Whenever Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died— and the very commandment that promised life proved death to me. Many commentators have said that Paul here is speaking of Adam right before his downfall, and so I think that we can read it on that level as well. I think that we can read this chapter as our own experience, uh, as the old man gasping for air as the new creation breaks in, or as the story of our life whenever the old man, though technically dead— Uh, is running the show. We find ourselves doing the same old things we don't want to do, even though our mind knows we should be doing something else, right? The old man is still operative, even though we are ourselves a new creation. And then, of course, I think it can be read as Paul's own experience as a human being. I don't think Paul is doing philosophy here. I think that he has some experience, as he reflects on his own life, of wanting— to follow the spirit of the law to the full and finding himself powerless to do it. And I think Paul has some experience of receiving the Holy Spirit and of a new capacity being opened in this life. Remember, one day he's going to Damascus to stone Christians. The next day he's knocked off his horse blind, and he has to go see Ananias to be healed. I mean, that's part of Paul's story. And so because Paul has had this powerful conversion experience, I think Paul was able to reflect on who he was prior to knowing Christ and maybe who he is whenever the Spirit is not operative fully in his life versus who he knows himself to be, having been transferred fully into um, the church, into the Messiah. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there, and we have about 25 minutes, 30 minutes. We can reflect on all of Romans 7.